Well, good evening and welcome to Steadfast. I am so glad to be with you tonight as we begin a brand new series, The Generations of Man. We're going to be looking through the story of the generations of humanity. That's how Genesis 5 begins and it's where it takes us all the way up until the time of Noah. Over the past few weeks, we looked at Genesis chapter 4 and we thought about how sin crept further and further into human culture and the things that happened along the way. And as we move into Genesis 5, we are confronted with the question, a question that all of us wonder quite a bit, which is, can things be fixed? Can the things I'm dealing with be fixed? Can the things around me be fixed? Can life really be fixed? Sometimes it's just too late, isn't it? It's just too late to fix things, it feels like. I was working on this message yesterday, sitting by the window, looking out at the beautiful snow yesterday morning, and as I was doing so, I, I saw the neighbor's rooftop and, and how beautiful the snow looked on it, and I thought, you know, I want to get a picture. I know exactly how I want to frame it. When I get done working on this, I am going to frame this picture and, and take this picture because it looked so beautiful. And you can't really see it because I'm not giving you the picture I was intending to frame, but just a, a little security camera picture. But if you look at this doorbell cam picture, you can see this beautiful snow-covered roof. The sky was beautiful. The rooftop was beautiful. It was glistening. And I thought, I'm just going to wait a little while. But then it melted some. Not too bad. I thought, well, I'm going to keep tinkering with this message. And we were getting... We had all kinds of things happening with the, the meeting that we had last night at the church, and I was trying to get some things ready for that. I thought, just a little longer, and then I'm going to take that picture. Well, as you can see, a little longer has turned into too late. As, as you look at the rooftop, it's now just an asphalt roof again in that picture. I never did get the picture I wanted to frame. And yeah, thankfully, the doorbell camera picked it up, but it's not really the same thing. It was too late to get the picture. I wanted it, and no matter how much I think, boy, I wish I'd acted, no matter how much I wish I could still get it, I can't unmelt the snow, I can't return it. And I think, because so many things like that are, are, are that way in life, that, that we think, when God talks about restoration, we hear a lot about that in Scripture. Isn't it all just melted snow? Isn't it just all too late? It's gone. Even God, how, how could he even wind back the clock? But that's exactly what we see throughout Scripture. And, and as we look at Genesis 5, things aren't going to be perfect. There's a lot of melting going on. But in the midst of that, we see God working. And here's the good news. It's not just in Genesis 5. And so as we look at this tonight, let's pray that God would help us to see how he is unmelting our lives as well, returning the beauty that has turned into a muddy, drippy mess that we would know, even when it still feels muddy and drippy, that God really can restore, and God really will restore. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for your goodness and for your love. Thank you for being the God who restores. And as we come to you tonight, as we read your word tonight, I think all of us can think of those places where it feels like our lives are just muddy, drippy messes, that they're they're not the beautiful, pristine snow. They're not whatever we wanted to frame up in the picture. I wonder if it's just gone. But Lord, would you help us to see the beauty that you intend to bring out? Would you help us to see the beauty that you will bring out? Would you help us to see how you do that through 
your Son, our Savior, Jesus. Pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So, can life be restored? That's really the question. And if you were living in the time of Genesis 4, maybe you'd wonder that a little bit too. We only get a few highlights, the ones we looked at over the past few weeks. And if you weren't joining us during the past few weeks, you might go back and take a look or just read through Genesis 4. It's striking what happens and how things get worse and worse so quickly. And I wonder about the person who wasn't of significance in Genesis 4. One of those first human beings, but someone who didn't commit any novel sin, didn't do anything that merited being recorded there. And so that person's just watching and they remember maybe the very earliest days of their lives when sin hadn't quite corrupted as much and they see the continued corruption and they think, this is not good. This is not what I hoped for. This is not what I thought life was going to be. And maybe they're right there in the thick of it because we're all sinners. We're all in the thick of it, really. But at the same time, even as we're in the midst of our own sin and our own struggles, we still recognize how life isn't exactly how we thought it would be and would hope it would be. And we wonder, can God really overcome that? I don't know how much Genesis 4 people reflected back on the promises in the garden that were made to Adam and Eve, how much they thought about what God said when he said there would be one who would come that would crush the serpent's head. Did they really think that was a full-fledged promise of something being made right? We don't know. Did they think maybe things were just going to be sort of status quo? We really don't know. But knowing us as human beings, it wouldn't surprise me if at times they thought about, well, what did God say that would be helpful? And at times they thought, well, everything's just going to stay exactly the same. But then at times they're saying, whoa, it just seems like life keeps getting worse. We, we're living in the end times. It's so bad. Because that sounds kind of ridiculous now, but they didn't know how long the, the earth was going to go on. Maybe they really thought, well, we can't keep up at this pace for very long. Sounds familiar, right? Because nothing has really changed. As the preacher in Ecclesiastes says, there is nothing new under the sun. And those struggles that, that we have and those things that we say are the same things that people have said for as long as we've recorded those sorts of details. And there's every reason to think they were thinking that here as well. Let's go ahead and look at the very end of Genesis chapter 4. It says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Skip a few verses. Let's look at Genesis 5, starting with verse 3. It says, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his own image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. These two parallel passages right up against each other tell us the story of Seth and they set the stage for what we're going to see in Genesis 5, the the line of Seth, that, that's the line of all living humanity. The, the line that goes on the ark is the line of Seth. So it's setting that stage. But there's some key things that refer back to the stage of the last chapter that are really important. And I, I think the biggest one is one that we talked about the very first week of the last series when we were thinking about the birth of Cain and Abel. And, and one thing we noted is that 
Eve, as she gives birth to Cain, says that she, with God, has created a man. She gives herself a, an important status there, like we do. We, we, when we're doing things, we may give lip service, yeah, this is through God and so on, but how often are we really thinking, well, this is through my hard work. This is through what I'm doing. And notice here, when we look at this particular passage, at the very end of that same chapter, she says something different. What does, what does Eve say? She says, God has appointed for me another offspring. And commentators, as they've looked at that, have said, Eve has been watching what's going on. Eve has seen what's happened, and she's seen what happens when people put too much emphasis on themselves and their own ability. Eve is presumably reflecting back to the garden how things were then, and everything that's transpired since. She's had two kids, at least, we were told later on more, and but at this point, we don't know exactly how many. We can start to piece that together, and we've talked a little bit about that. But she's given birth to those two sons we're told about, and on top of that, what else are we told? She's seen one of them killed. And she's seen the successive generations and the, the destruction, degradation that comes into humanity. So what does she say when she gives birth to Seth? God has appointed this son. She isn't taking credit for Seth. She isn't thinking about how great she is. She is thinking about how God is doing an act of restoration. He, he doesn't raise Abel up from the dead, but God does continue life, and he does continue the line of Adam and Eve. He doesn't shut it down, and he doesn't leave it only with the murderer Cain. He brings into the, the picture Seth, and Eve recognizes that. And that's a really important thing, and we're going to get more into that in a moment, but I, I just want us to think about that as we're going through this whole picture of what's going on here, that we start to see a shift in attitude, and that's crucial every time we're looking for restoration. We just have to first be willing to see how God is working. How is he restoring? But can it be? We could have said, and if we were Adam and Eve, maybe we would have said, it's just too hopeless. Things are just too broken. It's like if something happens to a wall in your house, a, a, a picture gets replaced and it doesn't cover the same area. Maybe you had to put in two nails to hang up the picture. Now you only have one or, or the picture was much larger and the walls faded. And so you decide to repaint. Now, if you've ever done that, you know, the unfortunate truth about that, which is that you can't just paint the little spot there that the picture was, because it's going to be really obvious that you painted just that little spot. If it's just from years of the paint aging and fading, it's going to be apparent, even if you had the same can of paint sitting in your basement or your garage or wherever you keep such things, bring it in, it hasn't gone through years of exposure to light and elements, and so it'll stand out. More than that, though, depending on the color of your paint, if you try to get some more paint because that paint was all used up or dried up or what have you, no matter how much you try, inevitably the paint doesn't quite match. Even two cans that were made at the same time don't necessarily match. Maybe you used up the one that went on that wall and you still have a can of paint that you painted the rest of the room with, but it doesn't match. And so what you have to do, you start painting more and more, and then you realize you got little on the ceiling, so you have to deal with that. And the next thing you know, you're trying to redo everything, and it seems like there can't be restoration. They're just starting over. And I think sometimes, sometimes that we think that's what God's going to have to do. 
God can't restore what's here because it's just too broken. God can't make it right because it's just too out of shape. And it affects how we view the people around us. It affects how we view our own lives. And it affects how we view our mission as a church. This coming Sunday, we're going to be talking about the part of the Lord's Prayer where we say, Your kingdom come. And how we view this, how we view what God can do with this world and what he's called us to do, so influences what we mean when we say, Your kingdom come. I don't want to to spoil that message right now entirely, but let me just say this as something for us to be thinking about this week. When we say that, are we thinking God crashing in and wiping everything out and starting over? Are we saying we want the rightful ruler to come and take his kingdom back and to make things the way they should be again? So crucial. Because when we go to that second spot, when we go really to what we're seeing here, where God doesn't wipe out humanity when Adam and Eve sin. He doesn't wipe out humanity when Cain sins. God continues to push his creation to move back to where it should be. We see that God can do what we can't do. He can take that wall that has holes in it, and he can take paint, and that paint blends in perfectly. The patches are perfect. God can actually restore what is entirely broken, far more broken than a hole in the wall, far far more broken than a little bit of aged paint. He can take a wall that's mangled, half the drywall's fallen off the wall, and reassemble the broken drywall. God can take it when the beams behind the drywall are collapsing, and he can reassemble those. God can take a house that's utterly collapsed, it's just a pile of rubble in the basement, and pull it back up and bring it back together. And that's exactly what we're starting to see. This is just a preview of it. Do we think that God's kingdom coming is an act of restoration or destruction and starting over? For us and our limited human ability, I really think that we think it's destruction because we can't imagine anything else. And the temptation when we see the brokenness of the world, when we see the brokenness of people around us, is to think, well, this person just, there's nothing that can be done there. We look at ourselves and we think, this person, there's nothing that can be done there. What does God say? He can do it. And for those who turn to him, he will do it. That's the crucial thing. One of the most unfortunate things I really genuinely believe that have come in, that's entered into the church is the idea that God is just going to wipe out creation because he loves it. What do we see in Genesis 1? He said it was good. And here is we're we're turning from that line of Cain and all the sin going on here and we're moving into the line of Seth. Let's look at that part I skipped over that's sandwiched in between those two references to Seth. We look at Genesis 5 verse 2. We're told male and female he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Notice here, we have that initial reference to Seth. And then Genesis chapter 5 resets. There's a few different places where we see a reset in Genesis, where it's like a brand new chapter. And as it resets, it's almost like if you watch a a show or a movie that has sort of a, a review of what happened in the previous episode or the previous movie, and it goes through that, it's almost doing that here. God doesn't want us to just be thinking about what happened in Genesis 4. God wants us to be thinking about what happened in Genesis 1. 
So that as we think about Seth and his line, we're not thinking purely of sin and, oh, well, Seth is a sinner. His descendants are a sinner, are sinners too, but maybe they're not quite as bad as Cain. No, he wants us to be thinking about what was. So that as we see Seth and we see, well, hope, we're not just thinking a little better. We're not just thinking, well, you know, I put that paint on the wall and yeah, you can tell where I painted, but it's not too bad. And as long as I don't have super bright lights, no one will notice. No, that might be how it feels in Genesis 5, but God wants us to be keeping in mind exactly how it should be. If something's broken and you're helping someone fix it, you don't necessarily want to put a picture of the broken thing in its previous unbroken state right next to what you're repairing, right? Because you don't want people to see, well, yeah, there's a crack here where it didn't used to have one. There's a chip here. It doesn't look quite right. No, you want them to think, wow, I can't believe how much it came back together. What does God do as the master restorer, as the one who brings true renewal? He says, as I'm working on restoration, I want you to keep looking at how I had it to begin with. I don't want you to, to lose sight of that. Why? Because God isn't going to be content with a nice little cracked seam and a little chip here and there. And it's, oh, it's, well, isn't it amazing? It's as good as it is. No, God is going to bring back perfection. That's exactly what he's going for. He's not going to compromise. And so when we're told about creation, when, when we look at what God's doing here, and then we flip back to Genesis and we say, wow, this is so beautiful. This is so wonderful what, what God was doing here in Genesis chapter 1. If only we could have lived through that. Well, when we see Jesus' resurrection, and we, when we're told that he's the first fruits in 1 Corinthians 15, for example, when we turn to Revelation and we see God's ultimate victory, what is God saying to us? I didn't tell you about creation in Genesis 1 so you could be wistful. I didn't tell you about creation in Genesis 1 so you could know what would have been if you'd only been here as the first human beings. I didn't do that just to make you yearn for something you can't have. I told you about creation. I want you to know about creation. I want you to wrestle with the fact that I said it was very good. Why? Because that's where you're headed if you follow me. That's that's the, the path. That's the purpose of all of this that we read about in scripture is to get to there. It doesn't stop until it's there. And so God doesn't want us to be satisfied with anything less than the perfection he intends. He wants us to know that he isn't satisfied with anything less than that. We look again at Genesis 4.26. There's something that may have just kind of gone sailing by us that we don't want to let go sailing by. And that is this. Listen to these words again. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Isn't this interesting? We're, we're told about these first two generations, and we're going to pause and talk about creation. But right before we talk about creation again, right before we think about how things ought to be and how we hope they are and how we're told in Scripture we can know they will be, we're told that people started to call on the name of the Lord. What does that mean? Well, we know that Cain and Abel offered sacrifices, but here we seem to see a more organized effort to actually turn towards the Lord. And in that, we see in Seth's line, picking back up with what Abel was doing. Abel was offering a sacrifice that was pleasing to God. What do we see here? We see people actually referring to the name of the Lord. Now you might say, well, how's that work? We're told that Moses is 
the one who learns God's name, and people have wrestled with exactly what this means. It seems as though, yes, they did know to some extent the name of the Lord. They knew how to refer to him, but they weren't going to know the fullness of who God was. They weren't going to know everything that God revealed to Moses and how he was going to call people together and make covenants and promise a redeemer in the fullest sense. They didn't know about the prophets. They didn't know about the gospel. They didn't know about everything that's written about in Paul's epistles, but they did know this, that they should call him the name of the Lord. They should turn to him. And in that we see a renewal of what it's clear that Abel was doing. God was pleased with this sacrifice. Why? Not because Abel was able to offer something so much better than Cain in a material sense, but because of the spirit of it. That the people, as they turn to the Lord, whether it's Abel or the people that descend from Seth's line, what happens? As they turn to the one who does renewal, they start to experience it. And so I don't think it's a mistake that we hear this and then immediately are told what we're being renewed towards. Because when they start to turn to the Lord, they start to see how renewal can happen. They may not know him well yet, but they know the one who will make them well. And that's what's crucial for us too. Maybe you're watching tonight and you think, well, I I know lots of people, they can flip through the Bible and tell me everything in it. They can get all the details about every little bit of theological minutia right, and they know the exact verse, and they can apply it, and I can't do that, and so maybe they're the ones that are going to get restored, but but sheesh me, how, I don't know how God's going to have respect for me. I don't know how God's, he's just going to say, you're too broken. You are that wall that can't be repaired. And here, we don't see people that could get most of the stuff right. And it's not that we should not aim for exploring the depth and the breadth of God's truth, but here we see the absolute, utter essential thing, is, and that's that you know whom it is that we follow, and that you look to him. And as we look to him, yes, we learn those things, and that's what the Christian life's about, right? We start to, to piece together the pieces, because it's one thing to know whom it is that we serve, but it's a whole other thing to understand who he is, to understand details like we're talking about today. That's why we read his word. That's why we wrestle with it together, so that we start to understand more. But what we've seen over the years is that there are plenty of people that have lots of the details, but their, their eyes aren't focused on the Lord. Cain had plenty of details, but his eyes weren't focused on the Lord. And what happens? Well, he does great evil. His line does great evil. We saw last week, Lemek, he refers back to the punishment that would come on anyone that would harm Cain, and he claims even more for himself, but he's not focused on pleasing the Lord. He's not focused on doing what is right before the Lord. What we need to do is focus on the Lord, look to him, and then fill in those details. And as we do it in that order, God's going to honor that study. God's going to honor our desire and our thirst for more knowledge about him. And he's going to use that to better equip us, to help us to deal with situations where we don't know what to do. He's going to use it to encourage us when we're feeling discouraged. But the key ingredient, the one that unlocks it all, is to look to him. All of you, I think, probably watching this know that I am a full-fledged card-carrying geek. And so I love following new technology. That's not really a surprise, is it? Now, I have to say, I, I feel a little uneasy about this whole Vision Pro thing, the new Apple VR headset. And the, really, VR in general makes me feel a little uncomfortable. The idea of putting something on our heads to 
see a reality that isn't the reality we live in. I, I look at the gift of eyesight, the ability to actually see what's around here, and I kind of feel weird messing with it. I'm not saying that you should feel that way. I, I'm still wrestling with this whole new world, as I know many people are, and exactly how it should be viewed. But something happened it, as I was thinking about this, and I was, I've been watching different reviews. I, I'm, I'm not planning to buy a Vision Pro. I, I fully expect I may never own a VR headset. That's not really something I'm aiming to do. But I'm curious enough, as a geek, I wanted to know what people thought of it. And so I've been watching different reviews, reading different reviews. And one thing that keeps coming up is that this headset, because it's actually sitting on your head, studying your eyes, the way that you select things on it is you look at them and it watches where your eyes are looking and it selects the button or whatever it is that, that you want to do. And something reviewers keep saying is, is challenging at first is that we're used to looking to the next thing. So if you're using a computer or a phone, you, you may spot where you need to tap or you need to move your mouse. And then as you move on, as we're thinking through the process of whatever we're trying to accomplish, as you're thinking about maybe writing a comment in this chat right now about how you feel about the Vision Pro, you look at where you need to type and then you find you get your hands on the keyboard or you, you go in the little emoji selector or whatever, and we keep moving forward. Well, if you're actually using your eyes to select things, the thing that reviewers have found is that they keep selecting the wrong thing because they spot where they want to go and then their eyes move on to the next thing, the emoji picker or whatever, and their eyes aren't actually looking where they want to tell this computer that they want to click by tapping their fingers, which is how you click on it. Now, why am I telling you this weird convoluted detail of a headset that costs $3,500 that as far as I know, no one watching this owns? Well, as I thought about that and them describing this, I thought what they're describing is how our brains actually work. We spot something that we need to deal with and we look at it and then we move on and we start looking at the next thing. The problem with that in many ways, it's good. But the problem with that is we do that when we're looking at God, too. We're struggling with something, we're wrestling with something, and we look to God and his word, and we're looking at it. But then, as soon as we look at it, and we start to get a little comfort, what do we do? We turn our eyes to the next problem, the next thing that we need to do. We say, well, okay, I was feeling a little bit uneasy about how life is messed up and uncertain. I'm looking to God, and then our eyes move, but there's this problem over here. And then we click. We don't actually click on God's word. We're clicking on our problem. We're clicking on our own sin and just feeding onto it. And it struck me as these reviewers were describing this very technological challenge, this, this problem with this headset that very few people have, they were actually describing the problem of human nature. Because that's what we do. We turn away from the Lord. But what do we see when we turn to the Lord? When we keep our focus on him, the problems that we're dealing with start to be patched. The hope for the future, well, we can see it in his word and we know that it will be fully patched. And that's what we see at the end of chapter four and the beginning of chapter five. We see the people turn to the Lord and inasmuch as they keep their eyes on him and they don't move to the next thing, what happens? We start to reflect back on creation again. We start to see a line raised up who will at least have some righteousness in it, a line that will be the future of humanity, the line that ultimately the Messiah comes out, the line that you and I are in as well, and the line that someday will experience full restoration. Not because we can move our eyes fast enough to the next thing to focus on, but because we keep our eyes on the thing that God has for us himself. Here's the thing. When we look to our Lord, we 
we see the restorer. Too often we get unsatisfied and we think, now I need to look to the next thing. But God calls us to keep looking to him. As individuals, as a church, as Christians in general, as people, the more we can keep our eyes focused exactly where the only hope of action is, the only hope of restoration is, the more we'll experience that restoration right now, and the more we'll be reminded that restoration isn't just partway, but someday it will be complete. Would you pray with me, please? Father, it's so hard for us to, to do this. It, we, we want to look to the next thing. We want to, to figure out how we're going to make things right. We, we look at the walls that are broken and we think, well, by the time you patch the holes in the walls and you, you paint over all the, the marks on them, there's no way it's going to look right unless everything is just wiped out and started over with. We look at our own lives and we think, well, maybe it's too hopeless. Maybe I shouldn't even aim for restoration. I just will make use of what time I have left on this earth because nothing could ever really fix this. But what are we told? That you are the restorer. And so would you help us to turn to you, to call upon you, to keep our eyes on you? Lord, we ask this in the precious name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Well, I hope this was an encouragement to you today. And you can encourage others. Everyone needs to know about the hope that we have. Maybe they've heard it before. Maybe they've heard it a thousand times. I know I've heard it so many times, and yet what do I need today? What do I need every day? I need to hear about the one who's restoring. Because as we go through life, we keep losing sight of it. We keep moving our eyes away. You can help by sharing this. You can help by subscribing and sharing our social media in general. As you do that, it might seem like just a weird thing. It might sound like the thing you hear at the end of every YouTube video. But why do they tell you to do that? It's because it gets the word out. And what could be better to get the word out on than the hope of the gospel? And that's what we're going to be reflecting on, well, hopefully every week. But certainly as we're going through this series, we're going to be reflecting on the heart of that as we're in this Lenten season, reflecting on the heart of how God takes us from that brokenness to the hope of Easter. If there's any way I can be praying for you, something you're struggling with, some place that you need encouragement, maybe a question that you have, you can, of course, leave it in the comments below, or you can text us at our texting line, and that's 833-356-4032. It's great to hear from you. I love hearing from you either way. Hope you have a wonderful and blessed week, and I hope to see you again on Sunday and then back here on Monday night. Thank you.